My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. And I reached out to Claes, and I told him I'm not here, you know, uh, screaming retribution and revenge because your grandson killed my son. Rather, I'm here in the spirit of compassion and forgiveness because what I really see here is that we both lost a son. In January of 1995, Plez Felix's 14-year-old grandson murdered Azim Kamisa's son in a gang initiation. But the story does not end there. From this tragic murder emerges a story of understanding, reconciliation, and the beginning of the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, which is devoted to stopping teen violence. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. Azim, can you take us back to that day in January 1995 when your world changed? So what changed my life 20, almost 24 years ago in this coming January uh, was the loss of my only son, Tariq. He was a, a great kid. He was a student at San Diego State University, um, very good writer and a very good photographer a wise soul in a young body. He uh, had a great sense of humor. And his um, favorite hero was Gandhi, uh, a man of peace. And while he was studying to become a journalist, his ambition was that someday he would work for National Geographic. He worked on Fridays and Saturdays as a pizza delivery man for a local Italian restaurant. So this was on a cold night in January 21st, 1995, and it was his turn to deliver the pizza. So he was lured to a bogus address by a youth gang. They gave the correct apartment address, but the wrong apartment number. So Tariq showed up and knocked on many apartment doors trying to find out who'd ordered the pizza. Of course, nobody had. So he came back to his car, put the pizzas in the trunk of his car, climbed into the driver's side seat. And as he was about to leave, he was accosted by four youth gang members. Three of them were 14-year-old. And the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old who handed a 9-millimeter handgun to a 14-year-old. And as my son is back in the car from the driveway of the apartment building. The leader gave the order, busting bones. And he fired one round, which came through the driver's side window. It entered my son's body under the left shoulder blade. The bullet traveled across the upper part of his chest and it actually exited under his right armpit. And uh, as the coroner explained to me later, that the bullet followed a perfect path. So I queried a perfect path. I thought that was an interesting choice of words. But he was very quick to tell me, Mr. Kamisa, I'm not trying to be insensitive. 
we do not see a path like this very often. And what it means in my lingo is that Tariq, that your son Tariq died a couple of minutes later because it destroyed all the vital organs in his body. And a couple of minutes later, Tariq died drowning in his own blood over a lousy pizza at the age of 20. Sudden, senseless death of an innocent, unarmed human being. The overwhelming grief of a family. The total confusion as you try to absorb a new hideous reality. So needless to say, uh, it brought my life to a crashing halt. I don't know what is more complicated for a parent than to lose a child. And I went through all the emotions you would anticipate, um, you know, hopelessness, despair. Um, really did not know how to move forward without my son. I, I have a daughter, a beautiful daughter, but he was my only son. And I remember in the ensuing months, I was actually suicidal at one point because I didn't really know how to go forward without him. Azim, I cannot imagine that loss. How were you notified? Now, the way I found out about this tragedy is, was a day after Tariq died. I came back from a, I worked as an international investment banker, so I traveled the world and I was in Mexico on a business trip and I had returned the night Tariq died, um, late at night. And uh, uh, we went to a birthday party. Some friends picked me up at the airport and I got home late. And the next morning, uh, my maid brought a little note that was put in my front door from homicide. I very quickly called and it's on the phone that Sergeant Lambert told me that Tariq had been shot and killed the previous night uh, in a gang-related incident and that there were some eyewitnesses and that they were following, um, you know, following on those leads. And my, my initial need thought was, you know, they made a mistake. Uh, we have a lot of Latin American people that live here. They have a dark brown skin like I do and my son did. So I thought it was mistaken identity. It didn't make any sense that Tariq was shot and killed. So I very quickly hung up on homicide and, uh, and dialed his home. He had just gotten engaged to his fiancee, Jennifer. They'd been dating for about two and a half years, fully expecting him to pick up the phone. It was early Sunday morning. Of course, he didn't. She did. And homicide had already gone to their home, so she knew before I did that Tariq had been shot and killed, and she really couldn't say anything. She was just sobbing. And that's when it hit. And uh, I, I remember clearly that I was in my kitchen, um, and I lost uh, strength in both of my legs as I collapsed to the floor hit my head against a refrigerator and curled up into a ball. 
And, you know, I, I don't have the words to describe to you how excruciatingly painful that experience was for me. I'd never felt pain like that before. And the pain was so unbearable that I had my first out-of-body experience. I practiced as a Sufi Muslim. Um, my practice when Tariq was alive was uh, a one-hour meditation. I started that at, my, at, at age 20. And I lost Tariq in my early 40s. Uh, now my practice is two hours. So I, I do believe in a higher power. I do believe in God. And I left my body and I believe I went into the loving arms of God. And he held me in an embrace for a very long time. I don't remember how long I was gone for. And it, it felt like a nuclear bomb had gone off in my heart. And when the explosion subsided, God sent me back into my body with the wisdom that there are victims at both ends of the gun. So that wisdom did not come from my intellect or my loving heart. Rather, it was a download from a higher power. And I didn't quite realize all of what all of that meant at that, at that moment, because I was so mired in my grief. And I lived by myself, and I made some very difficult calls to his mother, who lived in Seattle, Washington, and my parents and my daughter. And then I called my best friend, uh, and he and his wife uh, were with me in an hour and a half after I found out. And his wife went to get Jennifer, Tariq's fiance, because she was by herself. And I was alone with my friend and his. And by this time, we had a visit from homicide, and they told us that they have some leads to uh, some youth gangs that were responsible for Tariq's death. And I was alone with my friend, and his first thing that he said to me is that whoever these kids are that killed Tariq, I hope they fry in hell. And my response to him was, I, I don't feel that way. I see that there are victims at both ends of the gun. And I remember he broke down and cried because he said to me, if somebody took my son, not only would I want the killer, I'd want the whole clan. Where do you get this strength from? So that was the genesis of my journey. Plez, your world changed that night as well. Can you offer us a little background on your relationship with your grandson and your remembrance of that day in January 1995? Yeah, Tony is my one and only daughter's one and only child. And my experience with Tony began when he was born. I went down to uh, Maryland. To be with my daughter and Tony uh, right after he was born, days after he was born. So I'm, I'm, uh, and then spent a great deal of time in the months following. So I, I, I'm sure that paternally, even though Tony understands he has uh, a father, uh, but has never really had a relationship with his father. So the father he sees is his grandfather. 
And um, instead of calling me granddad, he's always called me daddy. The context for me actually begins with a journey with my grandson uh, when my daughter and my grandson and I agreed that it would be better for him to live with me here in San Diego County than to continue to live up in Los Angeles with his mom and uh, extended family members, uh, many of whom on his mom's side, of course, were and had been gang involved for quite some time. The incident that spurred that decision was Tony at the tender age of, uh, oh, about, uh, about six or seven years old, coming back from the store one evening with a couple of his older cousins, and then coming into the aftermath that evening of the L.A. County coroner uh, there with the police and other emergency services people, uh, cleaning up the aftermath of one of his favorite teenage cousins being murdered in the hell of automatic weapon fire. Uh, by rival gang members there right in front of the house where they all lived. And uh, it was subsequent to that event that my daughter uh, and I, and with Tony's input, decided to have him come and live with me. Uh, having suffered that trauma, having suffered that emotional, mental trauma of the loss of one of his favorite cousins, that was a a trauma that stayed with Tony, uh, and it was the trauma that I recognized, so that when he came to live with me, one of my priorities was to see to it, or try to see to it, that he was supported with the kind of therapeutic support that would help him deal with some of the trauma as a young kid. Once he trans uh, made that transition from elementary to middle school, uh, he began to do very well and uh, developed friendships. Um, and it was at the course of just about seventh grade that he decided he wanted to spend more time uh, out with his friends at the park. Well, my requirement was that uh, it was important for him after school to be inside, to do his homework, to do his chores, to have his meal. And if there was time, he could go out and be with his friends thereafter. But he got increasingly um, insistent that he wanted to spend more time with his friends out at the park after school. And then sometimes uh, that ran into the um, after uh, daylight hours, after the sun had gone down. And uh, so he and I developed kind of a, a struggle about that because he insisted in, in, increasingly he wanted to be out with his friends. And I insisted that he'd be home before dark. So this, uh, and, and of course, he's now experiencing some challenges at school because he's not really applying himself. So my arrangements with all of his teachers was that anytime he was not completing or otherwise uh, performing well in school, that they would send me a note that day indicating what the issues were so I could address it with him that evening and get him back on track the following day. So that worked out fairly well for a while. And then on the, um, I guess it had to be just about, oh, gee, had to be the 20th day of January. Um, he, you know, he decided that day uh, or the week before not to do any schoolwork. So I had all these notes from his teachers. So that, that evening, um, 
it had to be a Thursday evening, um, we had a meeting. And after dinner, the meeting uh, focused on the fact that I had all these uh, written notes from his teachers indicating he hadn't been doing any of his work, any of his assignments, and I wanted to know what was going on with him. What are the problems that pre prevent you from doing your homework and focusing on a daily basis at school? And he looked me in the eye and he said, Daddy, um, I just feel as though I'm the kind of guy that uh, if I have an opportunity, I'll do anything. I don't think I have any boundaries at all. I'll do anything. And I looked him in the eye and I knew exactly what he was telling me. He was telling me that he felt wretched. He felt as though he had no moral guidelines, no boundaries. And at the point at which he was sharing with me, his feelings were is that he felt as though he could destroy the world. He was filled with that much anger. I could see it in his eyes. And I looked at him. I told him, I told him straight blank. I said, look, sometime soon, somebody's going to offer you a loaded handgun and tell you to shoot somebody. What are you going to do then? He was startled. I could see it in his eyes. And he looked at me and said, no, daddy, I would not do that. I would never do that. I said, that's what you tell me. But when someone gives you that gun and tells you to shoot somebody, what are you going to say then? He looked down. He looked up at me. He said, I would never do that. I said, okay. All right. We finished our discussion. I said, you can go in there and go to sleep and get some rest because the, the next morning I've got a list of items I'm going to give you. And you got a list of chores I'm going to give you. And sure enough, uh, the next morning, I gave him a list of the chores that he had to fulfill, his homework, little chores around the house. And I told him, after you've done this, you can go out and be with your friends in the park and enjoy your day. I'm going to work. I'll see you later in the day. Well, of course, um, I come back home from work and the house is dark and he's not there. And I go back to my room and look on the Chester drawer and this little note indicates, Daddy, I have run away. Love, Tony. I had to then call the police. It was very difficult for me now to call the police on my grandson as a runaway knowing that at some point that could be really problematic. Then once I called and reported him as a runaway, I called my daughter to let her know that her son had run away and that he would probably try to get in touch with her at some point, and when he did, for her to be sure and have him get in touch with me or for her to get in touch with me to let me know where he is. And sure enough, of course, as, as the evening Progressed, I'm sitting up looking at television. There's late night news broadcast come on about a pizza delivery man being shot and killed in North Park. So at the point of this murder taking place, and it, it devastated people in the community because the community had not at that point experienced anything like that. Now, again, Tony's still uh, a runaway until I've notified much later that day, that he is now a suspect in the murder of a pizza delivery man in North Park on that fatal evening. Uh, everything, everything uh, changed. I began to pray. I began to meditate. I began to seek guidance and, and, and pathways 
to be of support to the Camisa family because their loss is a permanent loss. And the only thing I felt I could do was to offer up at the appropriate time and opportunity, offer myself up to be available, to be of support to them in any way I could because I knew that loss could never be replaced, never. What occurred next almost seems impossible, that both of you came to meet, and in that meeting, somehow, you came together. So I spent a lot of time alone um, with nature. You know, I was in a very much in a grieving mode after Tariq died. And uh, in April, I was in Mammoth, uh, figuring out how and why I wanted to live the rest of my life. In the Sufi tradition, we have a grieving period for 40 days. And we're told to grieve because the soul of the departed person is in close proximity of family and loved ones. And then I was guided by my spiritual teacher that at the end of the 40 days, which ends the grieving period, although it took me a good three and a half years, that the soul moves to a different consciousness in in preparation of its forward journey. And excessive grieving by loved ones and family after the 40 days impedes his soul's journey in the next world. Of course, as a father, I'd never wanted to do that. But I was taught by my spiritual teacher that instead of grieving, if you do good compassionate deeds in the name of the departed, that spiritual currency will provide high-octane fuel for his journey in the next world. And while I was in Mammoth, this was in April, uh, this kind of played in my head like a nonstop record, that if I did some good compassionate deeds in Tariq's name, it would help him in the next world. That's when I first started uh, putting together the pieces of helping honor Tariq, and uh, starting the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. And I saw, uh, as I said earlier, that there were victims at both ends of the gun, that it was clear to me that the enemy was not the 14-year-old Tony who killed my son, but rather the societal forces that forced many young men especially young men of color, to fall through the crack and choose lives of gangs and crime and drugs and alcohol and weapons, that what if I became the enemy of those societal forces and not the enemy of the person who actually killed my son? How did you get from that place of tragedy, Azim, to be able to even understand that maybe there are other victims here as well. I am just assuming that it was not an easy journey. No, I mean, it, it, it was not easy, but at the same time, uh, it was a download from my higher power. Um, I obviously did not know this, but uh, having started meditating at the age of 20 and losing Tariq in my early 40s, you know, I had a pretty strong spiritual background. My mom was a, very, a big spiritual influence in my life. 
and uh, and obviously we had a high level of empathy and compassion, uh, and was able to see that the enemy wasn't the fourteen-year-old. I mean, you could take the position he killed my one and only son; he should be hung from the highest pole. I mean, how would that improve society? The question I really ask, and Pless kind of referred to this when he just spoke, that how did we get to a place where kids kill kids? What is our responsibility in creating a society where kids kill kids? I mean, I, I, I felt that, sure, Tariq was a victim of Tony, but I saw Tony as a victim of society, of American society. And that begs the question, who is American society? Well, it's you and me. Because we are societies don't just happen, since we are all responsible for the society we've created. And I felt, and I'm a first-generation American, I grew up in Kenya and emigrated to the U.S. in my 20s. And I felt as an American citizen that I must take my share of the responsibility for the bullet that took my son's life because it was fired by an American child. When did the both of you first meet? I started to put the pieces together, and then I launched the foundation with the help of my buddy that was with me nine months uh, after Tariq passed away. And soon after I launched the foundation, uh, I had two meetings at my house. And at the first meeting, I had the district attorney that handled my son's case and asked that he would introduce me to Tony's grandfather. And I had not met Ples at that time. I think we knew about each other through media and press. Yes. And I, and I reached out to Ples. Uh, and I told him, I'm not here, you know, screaming retribution and revenge because your grandson killed my son. Rather, I'm here in the spirit of compassion and forgiveness because what I really see here is that we both lost a son. My son died. And Ples lost his grandson, although it's like a son to him, to the, crimi- to the adult criminal justice system. Tony was the first 14-year-old in the state of California to be tried in, as an adult. And I told him I started the foundation. And the initial mandate of the foundation was to stop kids from killing kids. And we essentially had three mandates. That our first mandate was to save lives of kids because we lose so many on a daily basis. Our second mandate was to empower the right choices so they don't fall through the crack and choose lives of gangs and crimes and drugs and alcohol and weapons. And the third mandate was to teach the principles of nonviolence, of empathy, of compassion, of forgiveness, and of peacemaking and peace building. because it's a proactive effort. We're not going to wake up one day and find that we're at peace. And I started with a very simple premise that violence is a learned behavior. No child is born violent. Tony wasn't born violent. So if you accept that as an axiom that violence is a learned behavior, it follows that nonviolence can also be a learned behavior. And essentially, that's the mission of the foundation, as I envisioned it when I first started it. And I shared that with Ples, and I said, it's a big job. And that the real reason I'm reaching out to you is because I can't do this by myself. It's a big job. Will you help me? Uh, and it behooves us to work together because it was your grandson 
that took the life of my son. I can't bring Tariq back from the dead. You can't get Tony out of prison. But the one thing you and I can do is to make sure no other young person in our community ends up dead like my son or ends up in prison like Tony. We can do that. Will you help me? So he came to the second meeting, and my, my, my parents were here from Vancouver. Tariq's mother was here from Seattle, and my daughter was here from Seattle. My sister was from here. I had a lot of Kamisa family at my house. And, uh, and I think it took a lot of courage on Plaza's part to actually come to my house for the second meeting of the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, and he spoke very passionately, and that, of course, I will help you. And as you see... 20, almost 24 years later, we're still together. Plez, what was the experience of that first meeting like for you? From the outset of understanding that Tony was responsible for murdering Tarek, my daily, nightly practice was to be in prayer and meditation. So I was in what my grandmother would call the prayer closet for about, oh, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve days uh, or more prior to getting... Uh, the uh, message and information from Tony's attorney that Mr. Camisa wanted to meet with me. It was priority one for me to let Mr. Camisa know that um, that tragedy was something that, that resonated deeply in me and that I wanted to be able to express my condolences and sympathies to him and his family about the loss of, of Tariq at the hands of my grandson. Um, and it was at that point that Azim uh, shared with me that he uh, started a foundation. Uh, he was having another meeting at his house, and he invited me to be present at the meeting. And everything we have done since that point has substantiated and verified that God is in the mix in everything we do and serves as a point of inspiration to do all we can to save the lives of children everywhere we can. I am sure that you have met people who would say, I don't know if I could do what you two did. You two are special. How do you respond to that comment? I'm not a special person. I'm just a working guy in all of us. All of us, irrespective of our backgrounds and irrespective of the challenges that we face here in our country or wherever we might be, all of us are endowed with the spirit that we possess that touches us and directly connects us. And we have so much power in the reality of that recognition that just that understanding in me as a growing person has really helped me understand the distinction between my mental activity and taking guidance from that and my spiritual guidance and taking heed from that. I don't let my ego rule me. Azim, your thoughts? I always uh, joke at it that uh, I worked as an international investment banker, so I have a PhD in greed and avarice. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes we think forgiveness is the purview of saints, and uh, I'm not a saint. And, uh, um, and I think that what might uh, 
be worthwhile mentioning here is that uh, both Plez and I are very spiritual people. And that was evident the first time we met, that there was a connection that was beyond intellect and emotion. Um, I've coined a word for it, that we connected at the cellular level. You have spoken about the Tariq Kamiza Foundation that has been created. Can you describe a bit more its focus and its work? Sure. The great, you know, by the grace of the universe, the foundation uh, completed its 23rd year last September, and it has done really well and continues to grow. Uh, initially, we started the foundation with the mandate I shared with you earlier to basically stop youth violence and have three mandates of saving lives of kids, empowering the right choices, and finally to teach the principles of nonviolence. We have since evolved from that initial position because we recognize that all kids need to deal because we all suffer negative emotions. We all have challenges. It's not just uh, the inner city schools. We've also recognized that teachers are not very well equipped to handle bad behavior. And how do they process these uh, incidences of disruptiveness and bad behavior in classrooms? So we've been working in what is now known as restorative practices. And the idea behind restorative practices comes from restorative justice. And we have a very punitive system. You know, in my case, it was uh, the state of California against Tony Hicks. Uh, RJ, which is restorative justice, takes a very different approach. The true justice is not served till three things happen. You've got to make the victim whole. We can't bring Tariq back, but working with Ples and working with Tony, less kids are ending up dead or in prison. That's meaningful to me. The second principle of RJ is to bring the offender back into society as a functioning and a contributing member, which we've done with Tony. And the third thing is to heal the community because crime happens in the context of community. And by us doing programs in schools, we are actually helping community. So what we have accomplished in this 23 years is what I call the safe school model which essentially has the mandate of restorative practices where we are able to take disruptive behavior and actually create something positive about it. I mean, our story definitely is a very good example of how that is possible. I am of the opinion that in every crime, there's an opportunity to create a better society. In every disruptive behavior, there's a chance to create love and unity from conflict as exemplified by my relationship with Blair. Appreciation to our guests for joining us in conversation. Appreciation as always to our listeners as well. A reminder that we have posted more educational links on our podcast website next to this episode. Thanks, everyone.